How's everybody doing this evening? It, it is good to see eyeballs and heads um, and imagine what your faces look like underneath the masks. And it's good to be with you on Sunday morning. Let me uh, ask God for help before we dive into the Word. <sighs> Heavenly Father, that song is the song of our hearts. One thing, one thing do we seek, and it's you. As we press into your presence this month, Father God, as we lean into your word even right now, I ask that you would remove every barrier in our hearts. Remove every impediment to us knowing you, treasuring you, and seeing you as you really are our true delight, our Abba Father, the holy fire. May we see you as those things and may we embrace you with great joy knowing that you will be with us always. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Matthew 6, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Matthew 6, verse 5, and if you were with us last week, you know we are in a series <clears throat> that we're calling Know Him, and the hymn there, of course, is God. Know God, seeking God, pursuing God. That's the focal point of this series, and this month really has been about knowing God in His Word, knowing God in prayer, knowing God even in fasting, um, and really, this month, giving God the first fruits of our time, our energy, our attention, our affections, right at the start of this year. And this effort, like I explained last week, is really kind of born out of Hosea 6, uh, which God, uh, at the end of last year, really impressed upon me. Um, that January, and, and really the, the cadence, the feeling, the, the, the inertia of the entire year, 2021, would be us pursuing Hosea 6.3, which is where Hosea says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. That, that, that would be our dominant pursuit as a church going into this year. Simply knowing God, knowing him, all that he is and all that he's done for us. One of the ways we're, we're inviting the church to pursue this is through the act of prayer, um, through a season of prayer and, and really fasting, set aside, setting aside our wants, our desires, even sometimes our needs, and using the time we would spend in those areas to press in to seek God. And the reason that prayer is so pivotal to this is that prayer is not just about speaking to God about our needs, and we're going to see that throughout the entire uh, really train of thought in the text that we're going to look at today. It's not <clears throat> excuse me, simply seeking God for our needs. It, prayer is meeting with God. Prayer is communion with God. Prayer is fellowship with our Heavenly Father. The Bible talks about it as drawing near to God. Psalm 62 says, pour out your heart to Him. Prayer is, is much more than simply giving Him a checklist of things to do. Prayer is drawing close to God. It's telling him, we want you. We want to be near you. 
We want to know you. So how do we do that in prayer? Um, if prayer isn't just a, a, a list of things to do <laughs> that we give God, things that we need him to do for us, if it's about knowing him, it's about seeking him with our hearts and our souls, how do we orient our minds and our thinking around that? And to answer that question, I want to go to Jesus, who taught us in Matthew 6 how to pray. Uh, Matthew 6, as you'll see if you look at your, the headings in your Bible, if your Bible's got headings, you'll see that it probably says the Lord's Prayer, which is the name famously given to this text. And it's here that we discover what it actually means to pray, what it means to seek God. Jesus doesn't just teach us practical steps and language around praying. He gives us more than that. Jesus goes to the very heart, the very meaning of prayer, what it means to seek God in our prayers. This entering of his presence and seeking him, not like a genie in a, in a bottle that we need something from, but, but seeking him like a father who loves his children and wants to spend time with us, a father who desires to meet all of our needs and to meet us where we need uh, where we have the greatest need, which is him. So before we get into the, the main body of this text, um, which is the Lord's Prayer, before we're taught the, the principles and the meaning of prayer, Jesus actually begins by telling us what not to do when we pray. He tells us how not to pray. So let's start with verse 5. We're going to read through this, and then we'll get into the Lord's Prayer after it. Jesus begins in verse 5 by saying, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. All right, <laughs> so before we get into this awesome text covering the Lord's Prayer, I want to look at how Jesus tells us not to pray. He tells us not to pray by giving us two examples. He gives us the Gentiles, or actually first he gives us the hypocrites, and then the Gentiles. And he sh shows us that, that these two groups who are praying, these two categories of people, are they may look like on the outside that they're praying, but none of that is really authentic, true prayer. For one, the hypocrites, which is where he begins, they pray in order to be seen by others. He's talking mainly here, you can see the pretext, about religious hypocrites, people who are in the synagogues, people who are in the street corners, people who are praying for show. They're praying so that others see them and believe or think that they are righteous and holy. And Jesus says to us about that prayer, no, don't pray like that. The only reward that they will be getting from their heavenly father, Jesus says, is that others see them. That is it. He says, don't pray to be seen by others. Instead, 
Go into your room. Go away from people. Go into secret and meet with your father in secret. Now, he's not saying that corporate or public prayer is a bad thing. We've been doing that (laughs) for the last three years. Clearly, and they've been doing it for 2,000 years. Clearly, corporate prayer is not bad. We see it throughout the entire corpus of Scripture. But any prayer that we do or that anyone else does in order to be seen, Jesus says, that is evil. And it's not a real, sincere prayer to God. It is a show. And it actually dishonors God and makes prayer about garnering attention from other people and not about desperately seeking your Father who loves you. And then Jesus shifts from hypocrites to Gentiles. So he goes from the religious elite of Judaism all the way over to the most pagan group in the world, Gentiles, who go about their religion in a different way. They heap up, he says, empty phrases under the impression that they're going to be heard by God for their many words. But Jesus says here, they're not going to be heard at all. They're not going to be heard at all because none of it is sincere. Their prayer is merely an external activity, just like the hypocrite. It's not governed by sincerity of heart. It's not governed by a real, genuine devotion for God. It is a a rote, superstitious practice that is honestly merely a transaction. The quality of the prayer in, in the mind of the Gentile, the pagan, isn't measured by honesty. It isn't measured by sincerity. It isn't measured by their devotion toward God. It is measured by the number of words they're using. And for those who pray it, their only goal is I want stuff from God. I want you to give me what I want. It wasn't about meeting with him. It wasn't about being with him. It was a kind of coin in the slot transaction. And Jesus looks at that and he says, no, no, that is not what prayer is about. For one, if God is your father, he already knows what you need before you even bow your knees and get ready to ask him for it. Prayer isn't about you getting what you want or ask for necessarily. Prayer is about something far greater than, like we said, a checklist to give to God. And so after we hear those two paradigms from the opposite ends of the spectrum, the question we would have for Jesus is, well, what is prayer about? This is what I see in the synagogues. This is what I see in the Gentile temples. What is prayer? To which Jesus says in verse 9, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this is how Jesus teaches us to pray. We don't pray for show. We don't pray as though it's merely a transaction. We pray like this. And so what is this? Well, the first thing we need to say about this prayer is that it's clear that Jesus isn't simply giving us a script that we need to read and then we're we're done with our prayers. This isn't uh, meant to be verbatim what we must always say. Every single word of this prayer clearly isn't what we always say because the New Testament is filled with prayers, even from Jesus, 
that don't use this precise verbiage. So what is Jesus doing? In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is giving us principles and themes that should dominate our prayers, dominate our minds, our hearts when we, when we go before God and pray. He's teaching us not just how to pray, but he's teaching us why we must pray in the first place, why it's so important for it to be part of our lives. What is the purpose of prayer? And he begins with this shocking statement. I mean, the the first words of this prayer are shocking. Our Father in heaven. I mean, if if we could just really understand that phrase, like if we really knew what it meant, if we really felt what that actually means for human beings to, to lean their hearts up against God and say those words, I think we might just stop right there and not be able to say anything else. Jesus is saying that you and I have a father, like a real father, and he is the God of heaven. That is an awesome thing. And what's awesome about it is that we're able to call him our father. This isn't true about everyone in the world. The Bible's clear that that only those who have trusted in Christ have been adopted into the family of God. Everyone else who refuses and rejects Christ are not children of God. And what this means is that true, real prayer is a privilege that belongs to God's kids to God's children. It is a honor, a privilege that we get from being children of God. And so we're not like the Gentiles. We're not like the, the, the unbelievers who go to a distant deity in order to impress them or in order to get their attention. We are going to our Father. Just like, just like that song said, Abba, Father which is daddy in the Greek. We are going to our daddy. And what's more than that is he says our father is in heaven, which tells us he's not just our father. He is the Lord of literally every molecule that exists. Everything belongs to him. He is the sovereign God of creation. He is the king of every king And yet we come to this king, we climb up in his arms in the act of prayer and say, Daddy, Father. And so when we do that, when we go to God in prayer, what is the first thing that Jesus says we should bring to our Father in heaven? What is the first request we should make? This is the first petition. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. In other words, may your name, your renown, your glory, your worth in this world be hallowed. May it be cherished. May it be honored. May it be revered. This first statement in the prayer is a prayer for the glory of God. In Jesus' mind, when he thinks about what should I talk to my father about, the first thing that comes to his mind, and really, as we'll see, the dominant theme of this prayer is not first about the person who's praying it. The dominant theme of this prayer in the first line that comes out of our mouth is about God, the one we're praying to. And this is really critical for us to see because I think naturally as humans, we are preoccupied 
with us. We're preoccupied with ourselves. In a lot of ways, the universe kind of revolves around us in our needs. We may not say it. We wouldn't say it. (laughs) But that's really what we act like. That's how we treat our world. But we are not the center of reality. As Jesus makes clear here, the center of reality is God. And therefore, God is where we begin with our prayers. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 11, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Jesus says this is how we must pray. First, by saying to God, hallowed be your name. Make your name holy. Make it in our lives holy. Make your name holy in Kingsgate and in the Seattle area and in our country, in our world Hallowed be your name. There is really nothing more critical, nothing more important than we can pray than for his name to be valued as it rightly deserves. But then Jesus continues in verse 10, building on this same theme. Look what he says in verse 10. To our Father we say, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does he mean here? when we ask God to bring his kingdom into this world. Jesus is saying that we should pray for God to bring his kingdom into this world so that his will would be done, that the rule that he has in heaven would be reflected in our present world, everywhere. In part, this is no doubt a a prayer, talking about this with the Zemeks yesterday, this is no doubt a prayer for the visible inbreaking of God's kingdom. This is a prayer for God's kingdom to to be visibly manifested in this world, that his authority and his power would be seen through the return of Christ Jesus. This is is how we pray. We pray for that to happen. Um, But it's not just about the end of the age. This prayer is about our lives today. Jesus is saying that we should pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done right now in our lives, in our families, in our churches. This is what Jesus is saying we should pray for, that that our hearts and our desires and our actions would be in perfect conformity with the glory of God that we first call into our lives when we say, hallowed be your name. That our lives would be in conformity with his value, just like it is in heaven. Think about this. Nobody in heaven is confused about God's worth or value. Nobody in heaven is confused about his authority and his power. And Jesus is saying that our prayers to God should be a request to feel something of that. To let heaven the realities that are clear in heaven pour into our hearts that God's glory would be pervasively felt in this world through the hearts of people who are redeemed for him. As they become citizens of his kingdom, they join us in saying this prayer. And so this prayer is focused on right here and right now. Of course, we pray for God's kingdom to come with the return of Christ And one day, every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But right now, in the middle of a fallen, broken world, our prayer should be that God enable us to live as citizens of heaven, zealous to bring other people into the kingdom of our Father. That's how this prayer begins. The Lord's prayer begins, think about this, entirely preoccupied on God. 
on his kingdom, on his purposes in the world. And I think that's fascinating because <clears throat> we, I'll say we, but I personally come to prayer and see it despite what a Jesus teaches here as something being focused on my needs. And I, I mean, I think we need to be really clear. Don't get me wrong. We absolutely, and we're going to see this, we absolutely must bring all of our needs to God. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So you and I are called to pray for everything in our lives. That's what that text says. God wants to hear our needs. But to what end, ultimately? Like, what is the ultimate purpose at the end of all of the things that our needs being met does? What is the ultimate purpose? When we consider how Jesus asks us to begin this prayer, do our prayers, when we come to him, reflect what is most important to God or what is most important to us? God wants to hear our needs, but our prayers need to come into conformity. They need to be shaped by the glory of God. Are we focused on his glory? Are we focused on his will being done, no matter what it costs us in this life? Or are we focused on something else happening before that? Remember what Jesus said in his preamble before even getting into the Lord's Prayer. He said, your father knows what you need already. Before you ever even think to ask him, he knows what you need. And listen to me, he knows what you need far better than we know what we need. Far better. He understands everything we need. So the question is, are my needs that I bring to him being shaped by what brings him honor and glory in this world? And interestingly enough, that's exactly where Jesus goes next in the prayer. Look at this. Give us this day, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. This is a request where we ask God to provide us with what we need today. Our daily bread. This could be food. This could be bread. It could be clothing. It could be jo a job. It could be really anything that allows us to do what God has called us to do. But I want to think about the language that Jesus uses here. He calls these needs our daily bread, which tells us two things. The word daily actually just tells us two specific things. First, it's that we should be praying to him every single day. The word daily doesn't make any sense if that's not the case. We should be praying to him every single day. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, we should be praying without ceasing which doesn't mean that all we do is, you know, pray. It means that our lives should be in constant dialogue with God. We, sh we, should, we should be in a constant stream of conversation with him because, like I said at the beginning, prayer is fellowship with God. And this verse tells us it, it's got to happen every single day. It's got to happen daily, not just when things fall apart or not just when I need something done by him. We need to be in a daily conversation with God, and we need to constantly bring our needs to him. So prayer is woven into the fabric of the life of the Christian. For us, prayer should be kind of like breathing. We are always 
talking to God. We're always thinking about his presence in our lives and what he might call us to do at any moment. The second thing this, this phrase shows us is that we are always in need of God's provision. Always in need. We rely on him every single millisecond. We don't feel that tangibly, but it would do us a lot of good to feel it. And I think this prayer is designed to remind us of that. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think he means it. <laughs> I think he means it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You need me, Jesus is saying. You need me. And that's what give us this day our daily bread means. It's our opportunity to go to God and say, I need you. I need you. I don't care what my body tells me. I don't care what my heart tells me. I don't care what my ambitions tell me. I need you today, every day to come to him and to feel in our coming to him, our utter reliance on him to seek every provision that we have, everything that we need to do anything in the given day. So think about that. I mean, even in our request to have needs met, our requests reveal who God is to us. We are learning about God in his, his nature as a provider as we pray to him in this prayer, reminding us every time that we pray that we need him. Our, our needs show us his value. And we see the needs continue. They get greater and greater as they go on. Verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now this is interesting because this is the, the only time in the prayer when the request clearly communicates an expectation. God's children, those who come to their Father in heaven, are to be forgiving people. We're to be forgivers. We are not to hold on to sin that's committed against us. So there's a link in the heart of God between our forgiveness from him and our forgiving of other people. And immediately after this prayer, I mean, if you just scroll down the text, Jesus takes time to explain what he just told us to pray. Verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So this is a, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. According to this verse, there is no scenario when someone can be both forgiven and yet refuse to grant forgiveness. That isn't a scenario in God's mind. That isn't a reality. We may think that that could exist, but these are not two separate ca categories. They are tied up together. Now, to be clear, this is not earning forgiveness from God by doing something he's called us to do. The basis of God's children's right standing before him is never what we do for him. It is always what he has done for us, period. But the question Jesus is asking in this prayer is, what do forgiven people look like? What are the kind of people that forgiven people are? How do the people who have received grace live and act in this world? Do we conform to the reality of his grace or do we refuse to forgive and in fact prove that we are not forgiven? 
This isn't a, a light topic, this is serious. And Jesus actually spends an entire section of scripture afterwards, a parable in Matthew 18, engaging this issue. This parable has this, uh, it's after being forgiven this enormous debt from a master, this servant refuses to forgive another servant a debt that he has. And it says at the end of it, the master finds out and in his anger delivers him to the jailers to pay every last cent. In other words, the cost, the price of an unforgiving heart before the throne of God is no forgiveness. No forgiveness. Therefore, as children of God, we need to be forgiving people. We must be merciful because our Father is merciful and has been merciful to us. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Think about that. As beloved children, we imitate our Father. We've got to look like our Father. His DNA needs to be in our lives. People need to see us and say, Who's your dad? Why do you look that way? Why do you act that way? Why do you talk that way? And so we must forgive like he forgives. And what this request here for forgiveness also shows, is something very critical to our walk with God, is the daily confession of our sins. It's so easy for us to, to forget um, that, that we need to constantly go to God, continually go to God with the, the ways in which we've dishonored him and ask for forgiveness. And it sh- I mean, it should be clear, we are forgiven already. We are justified by our Father through faith in Christ Jesus. But the mark of a beloved child, the mark of someone who really does know their Father is that they have a, a hatred for their own sin and the way that they dishonored him. They despise it, and they just don't want it in their lives. They don't want it sitting on their shoulders. They want to take it off. They want to be forgiven for it. And so forgiven people, people who are really forgiven, do not treat their sin like a trivial thing. They don't play around with it. They don't, they don't think about it as, oh, that's just a small thing. They go to their father with a broken and contrite heart and say, please forgive me for this. I dishonored you. I want your grace. That's how forgiven people act. And then at the very end of this prayer, Jesus ends with these words. He says in verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The end of this prayer, the way that Jesus closes this prayer is a plea for God to not lead us into temptation, but to instead deliver us from evil, from the evil one. This is a request for God to exert his sovereign, gracious power in our lives to lead us around the pitfalls of sin. And if you're like me, you know that those pitfalls are real every single day. James 1 tells us that temptation comes from our own desires. Think about what that means. If temptation comes from our own desires, our own passions, this means we need to be saved from ourselves. <laughs> like our, what God is doing here, if when he answers our prayer, is saving us, graciously delivering us from ourselves, from our own broken, sinful nature. And this is how Jesus chooses to end the prayer. He says, this is the note that your prayer should end in. Thinking about your need for deliverance and the reason why, I don't think this is an accident. The reason why I think he brings us here is because 
although we pray for God's deliverance every day from the sins that are in our lives, the struggles that we have, although that, that needs to happen, the only reason we can actually even make that prayer is because we've already been delivered. We've already been delivered. The only reason we can call God Father, Abba Father in the first place, is because he has delivered us, Colossians 1.12 says, from the domain of darkness. He's already done that. That is past tense. And we've been adopted into the family of God, Galatians 3.26. And that's why we can call him Father. If that didn't happen, this prayer doesn't make any sense at all. And as you know, that deliverance is only found in the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no other place that we can find that deliverance. This is the wellspring. This is the fountain. This is the source of our ability to pray. The only reason that you and I can go to the Father, the only reason that we can speak to him and call him Abba is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The, the root of the entire prayer is surfaces at the end of it through the word deliver us because he's already delivered us in and through the cross which is why Jesus in John 14 13 says this listen to this whatever you ask he's talking to his disciples he's about to die on the cross he's about to purchase their ability to come to God as their father says whatever you ask in my name this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, Jesus says, I will do it. This is critical. Not only for us to believe that, because it's so outrageous, I think we're tempted not to believe it. Not only for us to believe that, but it's critical for us to see. It's probably the most important aspect of prayer. <clears throat> That's even surfaced today. The only thing, the only, only reason that you and I can expect for God to not only hear our prayers and listen to them, but to work powerfully in our favor for our good, the only reason that that can happen is because we can say in the name of Jesus at the end of our prayers. In the name of Jesus is what actuates God's work on our behalf. Feeling it, knowing it, whether we say it explicitly or not, praying in his name. John 14, 6 says, no one comes to the Father. This is Jesus. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is the reason that you and I are children of God. And therefore, every prayer we make to God, whether it's implicit in our heart or whether it's explicit in our mouths, must be made in the name of Jesus because there's simply no other name by which we can pray. Jesus purchased our answered prayers on the cross with his own blood by making us children of God and making that verse, John 14, 13, true for us. And this text in John really does bring us back to the main question, which is how can you and I, this month and every month after it, know God in and through our praying. How does that happen? Jesus said here in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So think about that for a moment. Why do we go through Jesus to God? Why do we go to God through our Savior Christ? The reason we do that is so that the Father is glorified in his Son. That's the ultimate reason for prayer right there. That is the heart of prayer. The glory of God in Christ Jesus is why we ask anything in the name of Jesus. Yes, prayer is coming to God with our needs. We need to do that. Prayer is is seeking his will in decisions that we have to make. Prayer is expressing gratitude to him for everything that he's done for us. Prayer is all of those things. But all of that, according to this text, serves one central purpose, that the Father would be glorified in his Son. That the Father would be magnified, exalted, made to be seen by us and by others for who he really is. Prayer, when we go to God in prayer, when we reflect on who he is in Christ Jesus, we are tasting and experiencing and inviting the glory of God in our lives. We're asking to see it, to know it. I mean, that's what all of this prayer has been leading up to it. God, 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 I need you. God, you're glorious. Make your name great in this world. It is about seeing him and understanding him and knowing him. Coming to God to know him, to experience his goodness, and it is only through Jesus Christ that that can happen. That's what prayer is. That's why the Lord's Prayer is so unremittingly God-centered. Prayer is not a checklist. Prayer is not about what we think we need, even though we bring our requests to God. Prayer is recognizing that God loves his children. God is going to provide us what we need. We bring it to him. He provides us what we need. And that may include things in our lives that we ask for. It may not. It may include things that we ask for in this life. But what we really need, what each of us really need, is to know him. It's to truly, deeply know our Father through his precious Son, Jesus, and to embrace him as our treasure. And so in a few moments, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, um, and if your faith is in Christ, you are invited to participate. I want us just to reflect on the absurd privilege. The, I mean, it's just ridiculous the privilege we have, the honor we have as God's children to come to him. I mean, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what your prayer time looks like. Um, sometimes I get on my knees and I just start going through a list. I've got long lists. One thing God has been teaching me the last few weeks is that he just wants to be with me. And he wants me to be with him. And I think we just need to recognize that, that as we pray over the month of January, even for the rest of our lives, may our prayers be marked by a hunger for God. We should bring God our lists, but may we, may, may we have a zeal to simply be with him and to know his glory and to seek him May everything in our, our lives, even important things that we need, kind of fade into the background of the prayer. They can still be in the prayer. Fade into the backdrop. And may the central focus be this one thing. Father, I long to be with you. 
I long to be with you. I just want to be in your presence. I just want to meet with you. I want to tell you that I love you. And I want to hear you say to me in my heart that you love me. And I, I'm promising you this. Like, I, I don't care when it is, when your prayer time is. I don't care what it looks like. If you make time for him, he will make time for you. He is more eager to be with you than you are with him. And it doesn't matter how eager you say you are. I can say that with absolute certainty. And the reason why I can say that with absolute certainty is this. He gave his son's life so that you could be with him. His son's own life in order for you to be able to get on your knees and say our father and for it to hit his heart and say, I'm here. I'm with you. Let's talk. May we use this month as a means by which that reality becomes part of our lives. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to talk about great things like this. They are too big. They are too massive. That the creator of the universe, the one who sustains everything, is waiting for me to wake up in the morning so that he can talk to me. And his attention is fixed on us in that moment. Father, may we not neglect the privilege and the honor of prayer. May the reality that Jesus held out in this simple prayer, may the, may the glories that are just surfacing in every word be part of our lives. May they be woven into the fabric of our, of our days and our thoughts. May we hallow your name. May we seek your kingdom in this world, Father God. May you give us our daily bread with us receiving it in willing hearts, knowing that we need you. We are desperate for you, Father. I ask these things knowing that you can provide them, and I ask them in the name of Jesus Christ, Father, as you reminded us today in this text. It is through your Son alone that we can even go to the throne of grace. May we not take that lightly. May we let our souls seep or steep in the reality of your glory and your worth whenever we come to you and pray. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.